Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. You can turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel. We're going to spend some time in the Old Testament. We're going to be back next week to talking about our series, the, the, the Abundant Life, the Fruitful Life. But today we've kind of got one of those in-between sermons, in-between Advent and then getting back to business. And so... If you were to consider the name Ebenezer, Scrooge, yeah, what do you typically think of? It's probably this guy, right? Now, there's, there's been lots of Ebenezer Scrooges in films over there. There's even a Mickey Mouse version, is that right? Kind of creepy that Mickey Mouse would be an Ebenezer Scrooge, but we think of Ebenezer Scrooge, the character in the Charles Dickens story, A Christmas Carol, and he is known for his cold heart and his miserliness. It is so true, even to the point that when someone is lacking in Christmas cheer, what do we call him? A Scrooge, a Scrooge, an Ebenezer Scrooge, causing that name Ebenezer to kind of be carry some negative connotations with it. And you know of any other parents that are naming their kids Ebenezer these days? Not really? Now, all of that is unfortunate because Ebenezer is a thoroughly biblical word, and it is rich with meaning. And that's what we want to unpack and talk about today. The word Ebenezer it is a thoroughly biblical word, rich with meaning. And it is especially appropriate, I believe, as we begin a brand new year. And again, I'll show you just how that is in 1 Samuel chapter 4 through 1 Samuel 7. We're going to unpack the meaning of the word and then discuss how it applies to our lives. And so before we get there, let's talk about the setting of the text. This is the end of the time period of the Judges. A time period described in Judges 21-25 where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound familiar? Does that kind of sound like the days we're living in today? Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes and kind of making up their own morality as they go? Well, this approach to life in the time period of the Judges led to what is known as the cycle of sin in the book of the Judges. And see if this sounds familiar. It it probably does. Israel would be serving the Lord for a while, and then they would fall into sin and idolatry, which would lead to spiritual bondage and sometimes literal bondage. Israel would cry out to the Lord. God would raise up a judge. Now, when we say judge, we're not talking about somebody in a black robe who has a gavel. We're talking about somebody who's a deliverer, somebody who's a leader, who comes on the scene and leads Israel out of spiritual bondage. But God would raise up a judge, and then Israel would be delivered, and then they would serve the Lord, and then they would fall into sin and idolatry, and the cycle goes on and on and on and on. And before you get too critical of the Israelites and their cycle of sin, you might want to examine your own life for a moment. Because isn't that how it works for us? We, we, things are going well. We get comfortable. We maybe get a little bit apathetic. We get sloppy spiritually. And we fall into sin patterns and some habits and things. And then we recognize, oh, God, I'm in a terrible place. And we cry out to God, and God delivers us. And then it just it repeats itself over and over and over. And I think one of the keys to being victorious in the Christian life is to breaking this cycle 
of sin. So this is what's going on in the time period of our setting today. Next, it was also a time period um, during the corrupt ministry of the priests. There were priests on the scene in that day, specifically two men, Hophni and Phinehas. These were two sons of Eli, and they were wicked men who used the priesthood for their own gain. They did some abominable things in the temple, not in the temple at that point, but in the name of their religion. And their sins certainly set a tone for the nation as a whole. The setting is quite dark at this point for Israel. But in the midst of all this darkness, there was a ray of hope. And this was evidenced by the emerging leadership of a righteous prophet named Samuel. Remember the story of Samuel as a young boy? He hears the voice of God, and Samuel responds with, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And I really can't think of a better mantra for 2022 to take with you than that. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I think we'd be amazed at what God might be willing to tell us if we spoke this on a daily basis. Samuel would grow up to function as the last of Israel's judges and become the first of its prophets and also paving the way for the monarchy beginning with King Saul. Next part of our setting today and for today's text is there was ongoing conflict with the powerful Philistines. You remember the Philistines? Goliath was a Philistine. He was a bad man from a bad people who were aggressive, violent. They were a warmongering race, constantly at odds with Israel, so much so during this time that the Philistines are mentioned in the book of the Samuels over 150 times. 150 times you will find the Philistines mentioned, which tells you they were a constant thorn in Israel's side. And this was a really big problem because the Philistines had something that the Israelites did not have. Do you know what it was? Iron. Iron. And so that was a powerful tool to make a powerful weaponry, and it was also used in iron chariots, and so it made them the dominant military power who could pretty much just run over whoever they wanted to. And so what did Israel do when confronted with such an enemy? They made the false presumption that possession of the Ark of the Covenant meant guaranteed victory. Okay, Philistines, you got iron? We got the ark, that sacred box, you remember from our study of the tabernacle, from the Holy of Holies that contained the Ten Commandments and whose lid was known as the mercy seat. And it was the very place where the presence of God would dwell. And so Israel was so confident, or I probably more accurately superstitious, it was like a rabbit's foot to them at this point, that possession of that object would lead them to victory. And so that's the setting for our text today in which we'll encounter this word Ebenezer. And we'll encounter it in three different ways. First of all, it was a place of defeat. Then it was a place of repentance. And then finally, a place of victory. And so let's consider first Ebenezer as a place of defeat. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped where? At Ebenezer. So the first place we encounter this word is it's a place, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And so here we go. Another armed conflict is brewing with the Philistines, this time a battlefield at a place called Ebenezer. Here it is on the map. Uh, you'll see it kind of toward the top of your screen between Shiloh, which was 
kind of religious headquarters for Israel at the time. And then Aphek, all those other red dots, those are Philistine cities. Those are Philistine strongholds. And they were very, very powerful in those particular areas. So Shiloh being the home base, Aphek being a Philistine city, in between is this place called Ebenezer. All that dark brown there, by the way, that's Philistine territory. And interestingly, I didn't know this until this week, the word Palestine comes from the word Philistine. So let's see how the battle goes in verse 2. 1 Samuel 4, 2, the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. So predictably, the iron-possessing Philistines come, and once again, the Israelites are no match for the Philistines, leading then to their misguided response in verse 3. It's like, okay, Philistines, we see what you did, but now we're going to get really serious because in verse 3, and when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And so in verse 4, the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Well, what could go wrong with Hophni and Phinehas being in charge, right? Surely this time would be different against the Philistines now that the ark is on the scene. We'll go drop down with me now to verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What happened? Israel had the priests, Israel had the ark, but it all went terribly, terribly wrong, ending in a terrible defeat. And the point is this. Israel had religion, but not relationship. Israel had religion, but not relationship. They had their rituals, they had their sacrifices, They even had their ark, but at the end of the day, it was all empty. It was meaningless. Just as it says in Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Again, religion without relationship. They they sang the songs. They showed up for worship. They went through the motions but it was all hollow. Their hearts were not in it. They would rather relish their sin than serve God. And God hates empty religion. He hates it. I mean, he says the, the, the most shocking of words in Isaiah 1:11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. That's what Israel was trying to get away with. And it just might be what we're trying to get away with, if we're honest. 
It's one thing to show up here on Sunday and to go through the rituals and to sing the songs and to do the Lord's Supper and to open the Word and to go do our rituals and to think that, okay, I did my thing on Sunday, so I'm good. But your heart, where is your heart? Israel wanted their sin and their holy God too, and it just doesn't work that way. And Jesus said this in Matthew 15, building on what Isaiah said. Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Is it possible that what we've done so far here today has been in vain, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men? In the case of Israel, you could say, in vain do they go into battle illustrating for us the truth that God fights for those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. God fights for those whose hearts are fully devoted for them. Not, not for those who give him lip service. I think that's the lesson that we see here. Israel was going through the motions. They were going through their rituals. They were giving lip service. They went and got the ark, and God was not on their side with such emptiness. As it says in 2 Chronicles 16.9, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to give strong support. Anybody interested in 2022 of having the strong support of the Lord on your side? Sounds good to me. To those whose heart is blameless toward him. There's a qualifier, isn't it? To give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. And I don't believe that means those who are sinless. We all sin but for those who are walking in intimacy with Jesus, when we sin, it bothers us, doesn't it? And we fall on our faces before him and we confess it because we can't stand the guilt and the shame. And so we confess it and he cleanses us and he restores communion. He restores intimacy and relationship with him. I think that's what it's talking about here as opposed to those who go on sinning in a habitual kind of way saying, you know what, I can show up on Sunday, I can be religious and it'll be okay. It's not okay. The story tells us that. This was the hard and painful lesson learned by the Israelites at this place called Ebenezer because it was, first of all, a place of defeat. Is it possible that that's where you are this morning? Living in needless, I might add, spiritual defeat because of your rebellion, going through empty motions, empty rituals, Second lesson from Ebenezer is it is a place of repentance, a place of repentance. Let's go ahead to 1 Samuel chapter 7 now. As you do that, let me fill in some gaps for you from chapters 5 through 6. So the Philistines captured the ark, powerful visual lesson for the Israelites, but they decided after all, we don't want it. We don't want the ark. And the reason was twofold. Number one, God struck the Philistines with a plague. And it was a very painful plague. There's a lot of writing about exactly what that plague was like, but it was a terrible, terrible plague that the Philistines endure because of their possession of the Ark of the Covenant. But also, they put the Ark in the temple of their god, Dagon. And what would happen each night that the, the Ark was in the temple, their god, their idol, would fall on his face before the Ark of the covenant. And then eventually his head and his arms and were all broken off and it just freaked the Philistines out to see the idol, their God, on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. That combined with the um, terrible plague, they said, hey, we're out. We don't want the Ark anymore. And so they gave it back 
Interesting story if you want to read that this afternoon in chapters 5 and 6. And it came to rest in the house of a man named Abinadab. And essentially, the ark was in storage. <laughs> it was in storage. And then we read in 1 Samuel 7, 2, From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And I, I truly think this is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Do you see why? For 20 years... The hard-hearted Israelites lived in defeat and in bondage, needlessly, there's that word again, needlessly distant from their God, forfeiting blessing, forfeiting victory. For how long? 20 years. It did not have to be that way. I think of the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal son, a New Testament story maybe similar to this in some ways, where Israel here is the prodigal going off, doing their thing, lacking intimacy with God, lacking his blessing, lacking his provision. It didn't have to be that way. It didn't have to be that way for the prodigal son. It didn't have to be that way for Israel. It doesn't have to be that way for you. And finally, some winds of repentance begin to blow, and revival starts to peak on the horizon Hearts were being softened in Israel, and we read in chapter in verse 3, and Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord, how? With all your heart. Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And so the, the Israelites were prone to worshiping two particular idols. One was Ashtoreth, the goddess of fertility, whose worship included all kinds of unmentionable sensual activities. And then secondly was the god Baal, the god of the storm, especially important because how did Israel tend to make a living at this point in time? Through farming, through agriculture. They were an agrarian society. It was necessary for their sustenance and necessary for their economy. So when you break it down, their gods aren't any different than ours. Sex and money, right? Sex and money. It's as timeless as time. Samuel says to them, if you're really serious about repentance, then you got to get rid of your idols. You got to get rid of your idols. And then we read in verse 4, so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. And in verse 5, then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. I love this. This is the one thing that best characterizes the ministry of Samuel. It is prayer. It's prayer. Samuel was not a man who was mighty as a warrior in the flesh but he was absolutely a man who was a mighty warrior in the spirit. He won many, many battles, powerfully, miraculously so, on his knees as he interceded for Israel. And again, as you look for themes or you look for ideas of, of how God might be speaking to you or want to use you in 2022, I can think of no better place to start. Number one, that mantra, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. But number two, how about being known as a prayer warrior? How about being known as a person who spends voluminous, unhurried amounts of time on your knees, doing in the spirit what you cannot do in the flesh? 
He even went so far as to say, Samuel did in 1 Samuel 12, 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. As far as Samuel was concerned, any failure on his part to pray for the people was what? It was sin. I got to tell you, as a pastor, that's convicting. That's convicting. He was a mighty man of prayer. And then it says in verse 6, So they gathered at Mizpah, verse 6, the second part, and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. So this is interesting. What's up with the pouring out of water? before the Lord. Again, we're into visual stuff today. We've had uh, the Lord's Supper, which is visual. We've had baptism, which is visual. We've got Ebenezer here today, which is visual. The pouring out of water was also visual. It was an expression of pouring out their hearts before the Lord. Because remember, what was the problem in the past for them? It was their hearts. It was their hearts. And as they pour out water before the Lord, it shows Him. It is laying their hearts bare. It is pouring out the sin and the gunk and all, everything that is there. They are pouring it out before the Lord, exposing their sin before Him. And then fasting was another visual demonstration to, to demonstrate that their repentance was genuine, that it was authentic. And it's this word repentance that I want us to focus on for a few minutes because I believe with all my heart, listen carefully, repentance is the key to victory in the Christian life. Repentance is the key to victory in the Christian life. I think that's the message of this, of this passage today. The kind of repentance that's described in Joel chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious. Isn't that good news? Even with the Israelites and all their rebellion, all their presumption, he was gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. His verses, I think, give us a clear and concise definition of repentance. It's really simple. Repentance is running away from sin, and it is running hard after God. Repentance is running away from sin and running hard after God. It's a 180-degree turning, the kind described in Acts 3.19, where it says, Repent, therefore, and turn back. Turn back. That your sins may be blotted out. And here's the result. Here's what happens when we repent. For us personally and for Israel, for the prodigal son, turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Anybody in need of some time of refreshing this morning? The, the, the solution for that, the answer for that may be just as simple as repentance, running away from sin, running hard after God. Repentance is the key to victory in the Christian life precisely because it ushers in the presence of the Lord. And where the presence of the Lord is, there is power and there is victory. The, the sinful Israelites, they had the ark, but they did not have the presence of God because they were living in rebellion against him. And so they were soundly defeated, no surprise. 
But as we will see in a moment, the repentant Israelites had the presence of the Lord and then were overwhelmingly victorious. And so the next principle of repentance is this. Repentance is not just theoretical, it is practical. And here's where I think it breaks down for us so many times. We, we feel sorrow for our sin. We feel guilt for our sin, which may lead us to confession of our sin, which is good, but we don't go all the way to repentance because repentance then would cost us because it's not just theoretical, it's practical. It's more than words. It's more than a feeling. It was demonstrated by Israel how? How, do, how was their repentance demonstrated? Through the destruction of their idols, through the pouring out of water, through fasting. Ultimately, the destruction of our idols is always the mark of repentance. And Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5, 29. You want to get practical? Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, is this literal? No, of course not, because we'd all be walking around with one eye and one hand, right? That's not what Jesus meant by that. It is hyperbole that he is using, but it is to make a very important point. Jesus is saying, our sin is serious business. And we got to treat it as such. Repentance is serious business, and it's not just theoretical. It is practical. It means we're going to do something about it. We're going to do something about it. And likely, what we're going to do about it is going to cost us. Are we willing to pay the price of repentance? And so this is the second aspect in our, of our study of, of Ebenezer. It's a place of repentance. It was first a place of defeat, then a place of repentance, and finally we get to it being a place of victory in verse 7. So now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines, they're probably licking their chops saying, here we go, yeah, we'll go do it again. Um, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now this is interesting, isn't it? The Israelites were confident when they were sinful and had the ark. Now they're fearful when they are repentant and have the very presence of Almighty God. Go figure, right? But then it says in verse 8, And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Again, they recognized, all of Israel recognized the power of Samuel as an intercessor. They recognized the necessity and the importance and the power of prayer. They recognized that this battle is absolutely hopeless without God's intervention. And the good news is that in their humble repentance, they are now positioned for God to do mighty things on their behalf. And so we look at verse 9. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord of Israel, and the Lord answered him. Have I mentioned that Samuel was very excellent in prayer? I came across a great quote by commentator Dave Guzik regarding this nursing lamb that was offered as a whole burnt offering. I think it kind of connects well with the Lord's table today. He said, think of that poor lamb, a suckling lamb who never hurt anyone, 
or who never sinned itself, yet its throat was slit, its blood poured out, its body cut up, and its carcass burned. Why? Because Samuel and Israel had to say, this is what we deserve. This is the punishment that should come upon us. We thank you, God, for accepting the punishment of this innocent lamb instead. When we trust in the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we say the same thing. Verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And you might say, well, how can that be? They had iron. They had iron weapons. They had iron chariots. They were great and mighty warriors, so much stronger than the Israelites, especially after that slaughter that they experienced. But how can it be that the Philistines would win? Well, because the Israelites were in the ultimate position of strength and of power, and that is the position of humble repentance. And as such, the Lord was on their side and fought for them because repentance is the key to victory in the Christian life. And so verse 11 And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So there's that word again. The first time it was a place of defeat as you had sinful, arrogant, Israelites presuming upon the ark, thinking that, hey, we can do this, which led to Israelite repentance. But now Ebenezer is a stone of victory, or literally, if you break the word down, Eben means stone, Ezer means help. It's a stone of help. And the purpose of the stone was to remind the Israelites of what God had done for them. It was a monument. It was a milestone. It was drawn a line in the dirt saying, this is what God has done. Because we forget, don't we? We forget. The fact of the matter is, God has given us the ultimate Ebenezers, hasn't he? In the cross, in the empty tomb the ultimate visual reminders of what he has done for us in the past, which gives us great hope for the future. Listen to the words of Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, the cross is our Ebenezer. It's our stone of help. It's that monument that reminds us thus far has God helped us and he will continue to help us in the days to come. He has given us absolutely everything we need in this life and the next to be free and victorious for all eternity through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, we live each day in the glorious reality of 2 Chronicles 20.15 for the battle is not yours but God's. But I'm here to tell you it's only the repentant who can say that. It's only the repentant who can say that. Israel found out the hard way. You know what? If you're living in habitual sin, unrepentant, and rebellion to God, battle's yours. Good luck. 
But for those who are living in that position of weakness, which is really strength where we're on our knees before God and humility and brokenness, the battle is not yours, but God's. And therefore, Zechariah 4, 6, it is not by might, it is nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So today we're reminded that Ebenezer was a place of defeat, a harsh lesson that led to a place of repentance, and then lastly, a place of victory. Let's talk just for a couple moments about application, especially as we approach a new year. The application comes in the form of three questions. First, looking back, how has God helped you thus far? As we begin a brand new year, I would challenge you to carve out an hour's worth of time uninterrupted where you can just sit down and make a list of all the ways in 2021 that God helped you. In an hour probably wouldn't, if you're really engaged in that activity, an hour probably isn't nearly enough time. For God has helped us and helped us and helped us and helped us. But we need to be reminded of that because we can take it for granted so often and we can forget and we can just get busy And then when we do that and we don't remember, we get grumpy and we get negative and critical and we think we're entitled to certain things that we have no business thinking that we're entitled to, that certain things are our rights. And it's like, whoa, time out. Looking back, how has God helped you thus far? And I would just encourage you to erect a modern day Ebenezer, which is a journal, right? A journal where you write down on a regular basis, thus far has God helped me. And I am so grateful. I am so thankful. Praise his holy name. A modern day Ebenezer. The second question. In the present, how is the Spirit calling you to repentance? Is your heart fully devoted to him? Remember that repentance is the key to victory in the Christian life. Repentance is running away from sin and running hard after God. Repentance is not just theoretical, but it is practical. How are you running? Are you even running? I think for far too many believers, especially in our nation, in our culture, we're just marking time, waiting for Jesus to come back. And that is not what God has called us to. In the present, how is the Spirit calling you to repentance? Is your heart fully devoted to Him? Not just your outward behavior that people see, not just your rituals, not just your religion, but your heart. And third question, looking ahead, How does God want to manifest his glory through you in the days to come? The whole point of Israel as a nation was to be a people through whom God would work mightily that the rest of the world would look at and say, wow, look at that God. Look how he shows up. Look what he does. I want in on that. That is very much what we are to be about is we live lives that glorify God and draw attention to him, to his son Jesus, that people would say, I want in on that. Tell me about that. You're different. We spend so much time trying to make the church like the world. There isn't sometimes nearly enough difference. We reach a point where it's like, yeah, they're not really any different than we are. The whole point is difference. Looking ahead, how does God want to manifest his glory through you in the days to come? As we bring things to a close, I want to introduce you to a gentleman named... Robert Robinson. Handsome guy, right? He lived between the years 1735 and 1790. Uh, Robinson, like many, um, came from a troubled home. 
After his father died, his impoverished mother sent him to London to learn barbering, which is probably why he has those lovely curls, right? But instead of learning barbering, he fell in with a bad crowd, and one night in a chain of events um, led him to an evangelistic meeting where George Whitfield was preaching. And the words Robinson heard at that meeting led him to accept Christ as his Lord and Savior. And he began serving right away as the Calvinist Methodist Chapel at the Calvinist Methodist Chapel. And at age of 23, he wrote a song called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. You familiar with that? It goes like this. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart. There's that whole theme of the heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of God's unchanging love. And in the verse 2, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I'm come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious Blood. And then verse 3 Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I'm sure in a lot of respects for. Robert Robinson, this was his Ebenezer, right? This was his stone of help that he put down to say, thus far had God helped him. And so church, I would just challenge you as uh, we're going to sing this song in just a moment, but I would challenge you to put down your own Ebenezer stones, your own remembrances and reminders of what God has done for you in the past and what he will do for you in the days to come. So would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, as we approach a brand new year, Help us not to do so haphazardly. Help us not to do so flippantly, carelessly. But God, especially as we reflect on the passing of loved ones, those who are very dear to us, those far too young to be leaving this life, God, may it remind us of the brevity of life. Life truly is a vapor. And God, in light of that perspective, I pray that you would help us to cast off those things that are trivial, are not of you. God, help us to embrace those things that matter most, that, that are all about eternity. And God, help us to live lives of intentionality that put you first and then allow you to use us for your honor and your glory in any way that you would see fit. But God, to be those kind of vessels, it requires repentance. And I pray that all over this sanctuary, all over the commons, all over where people are watching from, wherever they're watching from, your Holy Spirit would speak right now that you would be, your hand would be heavy upon those who need a heavy hand upon them to convict them of sin and to say, don't drag this with you into this next year. You don't have to wait 20 years like the Israelites to be free. You can be free today. All that is required is a humble and contrite heart. 
that owns our sin and repents from it and then runs hard after God. God, if it requires brokenness, would you break us? Life is too short for us to waste another minute. May we make the most of this life that you've given to us, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.